Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So we send best wishes to Charlie Watts, who's um, undergoing a procedure. and that He's off it. games. He's, he? off, He's games. off games for a while. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so the statement says, for once my timing was a little off. I think that statement, we, we should thank once again Bernard Doherty. I think that surely comes from the rich imagination. Of Mr. B. Doherty, doesn't it? Rather than rolling off the tongue of Charlie Watts. <laughs> it's so brilliant, isn't it? It's such it's, a funny quote. It's perfect. It's probably, I, I would imagine Bernard's had that sitting around in a notebook for years, waiting for just such an eventuality. Well, it's the same as uh, whatever it was. 20, 25, 25 years of playing and 20 years of hanging around. Yeah, you know? yeah, Which yeah. Actually, I think he said to you, actually. He did. He which sounded to me as that might have been given to him on a piece of paper just beforehand. <laughs> But bless him, no, he's off games. It's a bit like, I remember Neil Tennant at Smash It's always used to describe when people were always saying that they're back home, they've got some LucasAid, they've got a jigsaw, and they're having something eggy on a tray. Eggy on a tray, absolutely. <laughs> that may be what he's doing. But who would have believed that, that Keith Richards would have been the healthiest member of the Stones? <laughs> Not of has, I think, because Charlie was ill a while ago. Ronnie's been very ill recently. Jagger had the heart operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Keith, as far as I can see, apart from having an abscess on his finger after stabbing his finger in 2015 on the end of a guitar string, again, whether we believe that or not, it might be the work of, of Doggerty trying to cover up something else, actually. That was his only time that they had to cancel a gig, I think. So uh, They they did. They cancelled those Wembley shows. They did. They postponed those Wembley yeah. shows. And so people have been asking, you know, in the world of social media, you know, at what point do the Rolling Stones cease becoming the Rolling Stones? If you have a ticket to see the Rolling Stones and you're not seeing Charlie Watts on the drums, you're seeing session man Steve Jordan, are you feeling slightly shortchanged? You see, I think I am. I am. Um, I am. Whereas, and no disrespect to him, the new boy who's been there for whatever it is, nearly 40 years, <laughs> no Ronnie Wood, I would mind less, actually. But no oh, Charlie Watts. Oh, my Lord. Charlie Watts is... is he, right. It's a kind of feature, isn't it? It's a feature yeah. of the property, isn't it, Charlie Watts? It's, yeah. Like, yeah. It's like turning up at the uh, 
I don't know, Tower Bridge and find it's been moved or something. You know, it's uh, he, he's just, he's an original feature, isn't it? Really, and, and you want the original features. Anyway, we wish him well, and uh, you know, we hope he's back as soon. But there's another drummer-related story. You know, it's that story about the guy from Offspring. Yes. I know, an amazing guy called Pete Parada, the drummer of who, and it's so interesting because he's been fired from the group, as far as I can see, uh, I don't know if permanently or temporarily, for, for not having a vaccination. He's not been vaxxed. No. He claims he has some condition where it's, he shouldn't be vaxxed, but they don't feel comfortable being around a guy who isn't vaxxed on the tour, so he's been booted out of the band, which is just another classic example of how the left and right wing appear to change places. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. It's amazing. Cause the, you know, the left wing used to be the kind of the anarchists. The kind we of, do I, what I we want. Yeah, no <laughs> one no one rubber stamps. I won't, I won't kowtow to the man <laughs> to authority. And now it's the right wing. The right wing are the ones out there, aren't they? Complaining and, uh, you know. It's it's very it's very difficult, isn't it? Really, because it's a it's a working environment, isn't it? Being in a band, and you know, there are some employers who are you're saying if people don't don't get vaccinated, we don't want them back or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I suppose this is this is a similar case. Well, really, it used, to, it used to be rock musicians calling out politicians for their bad behaviour, and uh, other way around. Actually, it was politicians. Called, sorry, it's politicians having to go at rock musicians. And now it's the other way around, isn't it? It's completely the other way around. Yeah. Way around. And and the key watchword, if you if you go back and listen to loads of uh, music from the late sixties, early seventies, the key watchword was freedom. Yeah. Freedom. It was, it was the freedom mix. You cannot take Apple's away got my freedom. freedom. It's all about freedom. Nowadays, the people chanting that are entirely on the other end of the uh, of, of the political spectrum. You know, it's it's just really interesting, challenging times, Mark. Absolutely uh, fair to say. So yeah, um, so so there's drummers, and of course you can't, you know, as I've frequently observed, you cannot replace drummers. You just can't be done. They're not the same group once it's got a different drummer in there, you know. And that's certainly the case with the Rolling Stones, and certainly the case with Led Zeppelin, loads of other people. Uh, well, Led Zeppelin, they didn't, they didn't even try, did they? Well, not really, no, and and they were right. Apart from Live Aid, <laughs> they were right. Well, they had, they had, they had Phil Collins, didn't they? So that was like, yeah. yeah, yeah, oh yeah, they did. They had yeah. Two drummers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, two quite quite good drummers there. So it's is it right that it's fifty five years ago this week since I bought this record? The yes, Revolver. Is that is that the case? Yeah, it is absolutely. Oh, my picture's the wrong way round. Wow. It's never done that before. That's odd. Wow. Does that mean I'm reversed? No, you look all right to me. No, no, it's fine. The album sleeve is correct. Oh, is it? Okay. Fine. Can you remember buying it? I can. I'll tell you the story. So it's summer 66, is it? Yeah, of course it is. And uh, I was returning from a school trip. We went to Norway. We went to Ulvik. God, it's pretty adventurous. Field, adventurous for a 66 school trip. Uh, yeah, they were there. It was, it was get, a, get a bunch of kind of uh, randy young chaps as far away from civilization as possible. Yeah. I think that was pretty much the idea. And, uh, and we were full of herring. <laughs> full of herring. <laughs> Yogurt. And we came, but we, we sailed back from uh, Bergen to Newcastle, and then was a coach from Newcastle back to Wakefield. I was being dropped off at school. And as the bus went round the ball ring in the centre of Wakefield, which is the roundabout in the middle of Wakefield, 
you looked and they, they had a shop on the ball ring, which is like many places where you bought records in those days. It wasn't a record shop. It was a kind of general confectioner, tobacconist, so forth, but had a few records at the back. So and did these, you know Revolver was likely to be out? I can't I honestly can't remember. Because you I probably get, didn't know then. You thought there might well, be an album at some stage. But they might not say what day it was going to be. And yeah. you, I just saw this in the, in the window from the coach and thought, oh, Crikey, that's a Beatles LP, and uh, and so you know, must have gone home and then um, following day or something like that, put together whatever whatever um, record tokens and spare cash that was around the house, uh, and went out and bought it, and uh, yeah, there it is, mono copy, as everybody did in those days, because nobody had a stereo. It said also available on stereo PCS seven double oh nine. But you know they, all this business of, of stereo and uh, and how things how people listen to things in the past came up yesterday because it, it's there's been this this mammoth reissue of uh, of George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, hasn't there? With yeah, it has. Unbelievable. Caused all my really divided the critics, isn't it? Because <laughs> I, I, God, I don't know. I don't know where to start on this. Because well, so there's I mean, mine. There's yeah. mine, which I've had since 1970, and that was stereo. It was one of the in one of the first stereo records I got, probably. Um, and the, the the thing you have to bear in mind about all things must pass, which may not be evident to people who weren't there at the time, it was an enormous hit, absolutely hit. enormous hit. My sweet lord was the record of the year, late 70, going into 1971. And the album off the back of it was absolutely huge. It was the biggest, I think the Beatles, still the biggest Beatles solo project. You know, even Imagine and Band on the Run and all those things were not as big as All Things Was Pass. It was absolutely huge. And it also was, a massive event because it was a triple album and a box set, wasn't it? You know, and, and you know, that, that in itself seemed an incredible moment. Massive yeah. statement. And but I can't help but think that people are getting a bit carried away by the fact that it's been re-released in this um, variety of different formats. I mean, you can now buy a version, can't you, for $1,000. Am I right? <laughs> One, I think it's $999, buys you a wooden crate in which you get the album, I think it's eight, eight vinyls, uh, five CDs or whatever, 70 tracks, 47 of them demos. You get books, you get figurines of garden gnomes and George Harrison. You get handwritten lyrics, you get Klaus Vormann illustrations, Hindu prayer beads. I mean, it's unbelievable. I find all that stuff really exciting. Clearly, I'm not going to spend $1,000 getting it. But I think people have been carried away by the fact that this is just an enormous event. And they're talking about how it's infinitely better sounding than than the original. I don't know. I mean, I've listened to quite a lot. For me, the, the, the exciting thing is all the outtakes, you know. You get all these extras, which I think is really up to listen to a lot last night. Can you believe there's more than one take of It's Johnny's Birthday? Do you remember that? Oh, joy. It's a kind of throwaway number, but no, they did several takes of it. You know, There's a version of Wedding Bells are Breaking Up That Old Gang of Mine, which is really, really funny. Just them goofing about in the studio. You know? The songs that you've never heard before, Cosmic Empire, not particularly good, actually. Lots and lots of outtakes, rather lumpen outtakes of things like Wah Wah. Nothing quite like the amazing version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, uh, which I remember vividly from the, the anthology things. But I just, I, what did you think of the sound? Because that's the issue, well, isn't it? I mean, it, I did tell it you, sound I tell wildly you. different to you? I mean, 
what I what I what I I think is I've had this record fifty years, more than fifty years, and at no stage in those more than fifty years have I ever thought, you know, if only they remixed this, yeah. if only they brought the vocal up a bit or took that down a bit or a yeah, little yeah. bit less echo or whatever. Never has it ever occurred to me, and so. On one hand, you know, what, what I think about it is neither here nor there, because on one hand, I have 50 years acquaintance with this thing, right? And on the other hand, I've got one day's whisking through some kind of remix of it or something, you know, and so... What's it going to do? Is it going to supplant the other one? And well, not in my not in my memory or my lifetime, you know, because you know, because what what is competing with is fifty years of listening to something. That's yeah. the interesting thing to me. And I, I think after a time, I don't know who they're. I suppose they're doing it for a new audience. I suppose that's what they're doing. You know, they're saying, "Well, we don't care about old timers." <laughs> who bought it back then and have been listening to it for years. This is a new thing. This is for people who were, you know, born in 1980 or something like that. I don't know. Um, and I, I just think it's it's really interesting because it's kind of, it seems to be the way things are going to go in the future. I mean, a lot of it is to do with the fact that it's a, it's a streaming world at the moment. Um and so, you know, when Taylor Swift redid a load of her stuff, half the thinking behind that was get it on streaming services. So your stuff eventually overtakes the stuff that you don't own the full rights to. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So the, so the new version goes on top of the old version and eventually buries the old version. And then what happens again, another 10 years' time, somebody comes along and does another one or something. That, that does the same thing because it's not like, you know, in the days of physical product, you went in a shop and you said, all right, show me George Harrison's All Things Was Passed. They passed you it. You, you put it in your hand. Nowadays, it's not. It's just, it's a license to sell things called George Harrison's All Things Was Passed. Well, uh, precisely. I mean, it's just, if you remix something, and I think this has been remixed, I think it's the third time it's been remixed, actually. I think there's one in 2009. I think there's one in 2012. But I mean, it's just a way of ensuring that people have to go back and re-listen to it in order to hear what you've done. That's just the, just a way of getting people's attention and hopefully getting their money, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, I, the people complaining must be the people who've got the original and just simply don't want I, it changed. And just, I'm not I'm complaining. I complain about the, the principle of changing it. I'm not complaining. You know, so what do you think about things like the Beatles remastered? Because the remastered Beatles is infinitely clearer and you can hear all the separation you can hear precisely all the different instruments but then the kind of mono beatles is that wonderful you know everything welded together into a great big slab of sound which is very very attractive and that's how we well, first heard it. you know that's how everybody heard it yeah be by the sergeant pepper is you know the classic case people have heard it on, in mono because yeah. people didn't have stereos and, uh, you know, there are very few people who would have heard that in stereo. And nobody at the time listened to it and thought, well, if only it was in stereo. <laughs> you know? And, um, and of course, stereo, in the, and then, then when stuff started appearing in stereo, it was very kind of ham-fisted, 
you know, uh, reprocessed stereo, wasn't it? Where all oh, yeah, it was. You had bass and drums on one yeah. side, <laughs> guitar and keyboards the other, vocal in the middle. I know. Very, it very unsatisfactory, you know. And, um, I mean, I suppose, you know, I, I would still listen to that in mono, you know, whereas it started to change around that time, you know. So you wouldn't listen to the White Album in mono, would you? And that was only a year later, wasn't it? Yeah, Why is it true. Well, in 1968. So yeah. that that's the... That's the kind of changing point, isn't it, really? Did the White Album come out in mono? I suppose it must have. Yeah, it did. I'm sure did it did. Oh, well, well, I'm or the two that. different versions. I don't find that. But I can't tell with this thing. I listened to quite a bit last night, and, you know, the vocal is a bit higher in the mix, isn't it? And some of the brass is kind of punched up, and there's the old slide guitar you didn't notice before. But, uh, you know, it's not, it, it's not, it doesn't seem wildly different to me. And who cares? <laughs> well, I'll tell you who cares. I'll tell you one person who cares. Have you, have you, do you watch those clips of Bobby Whitlock? Oh, it's Bobby Whitlock. I saw that. Yeah, Bobby Whitlock, who played the, uh, I, I the do keyboard and the piano on it. And he's absolutely incensed, I do. He? I do recommend people should seek out the, the YouTube channel of Bobby Whitlock. Bobby Whitlock, member of Delaney and Barney's band, you know, singer, keyboard player, organist. And then... Derek and the Dominoes. Derek and the Dominoes. He, I yeah. Mean, yeah, and um, so sang Layla, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, he's still around and he's, with his his wife partner, who's, who's clearly very shrewd in keeping his profile out there. So this is what Bobby Willow does, because I've watched a load of Bobby Willow videos, and they're all kind of really interesting. Oh, does he do? That's, gee, that's the first one I'd seen. So is he Mark, constantly Mark, firing off? Mark, he does hundreds, hundreds, Okay. Right. Every, everybody he's ever worked with, he, he'll do. He'll just think about, you know, reminisce about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. And she'll, you know, she'll film him and she'll interview him or whatever. And two things are always you've got to look out for. Whenever he does a new one, he's always wearing a different shirt. So she, I'm sorry, she has clearly said to him, being, you know, his is. She's the costumier. She's, she's the costumier. director. She's everything. <laughs> Hair and, and makeup. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. He looks brilliantly well preserved, actually. Yeah, absolutely. He does really well. Right. He looks fabulous. So she, she always says, now put a different shirt on. No, you worn that one before. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, it's always done in a slightly different angle of a slightly different corner of their quite nice home. You know, it's in the kitchen. So what does he talk about? Because uh, he's about he's everything. Just, Anybody he's worked with, you know, and he's worked with a load, you know. So he'll talk about Eric Clapton or he'll talk about Leon Russell or he'll talk about Delaney, Delaney and Bonnie and all sorts of people. And, uh, you know, he does have a very good memory. And so anyway, his thing about all things must pass, he just he couldn't restrain himself yesterday. <laughs> you know, he, he just... He said it was the worst thing he'd ever heard in his life. I don't think it's that bad at all, you know. He, but. He, I, it's unbelievably outspoken. It's worth watching, isn't it? He's just, he thinks they've, it's a travesty. He does. They've wrecked it, you yes. know. <laughs> and it's muddy and it's appalling. And uh, but, but, you know, he must, I mean, fair enough, he remembers being there. And he does remember being there. You can tell. Yeah. You know, he says, I was there at every single session. I was there, even there at the sessions that I didn't play on because I wanted to be there at absolutely every single yeah. session. And so I, I do, I, I believe him in that. So it's um, it's very, very much worth watching. Uh, let's see if he changes his mind in due course. So where will the remixes end? 
The Godfather. Ne- Will the Godfather come back? Oh, know, well, well, there you see, that's audible. My, yeah, yeah. If you, you see, do I want to hear the Godfather in such a way that I can hear absolutely every bit of dialogue? I'm not sure I do, really. No, you don't. The thing about the Godfather was the Godfather was you kind of it was real. It was real conversation. You kind of had to lean in as if you were eavesdropping. The murk you is, quite hear what they were saying. The murk know? is part of the appeal of these things. You know, it is. It's, it's like, like the Irishman. You need subtitles to understand what the hell's going on. But you, it, it, you know, it's, it's like all things must pass. But taking away and oh, take away the spectrized echo. Well, there were be doing that if Spectre was A, still alive, and B, not disgraced. Yeah. Nobody would be doing this if this were, I don't know who, Holland, Dozier Holland or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would not dare. They only dare because A is disgraced, B is dead. And so they can say... Yeah, the two main characters can't complain about Absolutely. It, I know. Anyway, we shall see. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Well, as it was his 120th birthday, uh, three or four days ago, I was reminded of the life story of Louis Armstrong. And my question to you, Dave, is did any musician ever, ever have a tougher life, tougher start to life than Louis Armstrong? It's incredible. Niall Rogers, do you remember we interviewed him once on a podcast? Niall Rogers, you know, mum was 13 when she got pregnant with him. She was just 14 when he was born, brought up in 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 a brothel. Thelonious monk coming around various other junkies to score. I mean, a really difficult life. Uh, 50 Cent, you know, mum was a drug dealer who died in a mysterious fire when he was eight. His father left, brought up by his grandparents when he was 12, he became a dealer. You know, Dolly Parton, Ringo Starr, Rihanna. I mean, they had really, really tough lives. But, but Louis Armstrong, seriously. I mean, firstly, his mother told him inexplicably that he was born on the 4th of July, 1900. Actually, he was born on, on the 4th of August, 1901. I mean, I know it's not a big deal, but he grew up thinking that he was a year older than he actually was. So when he was six at school, probably struggling slightly, he was actually only four. Um, his mum had him when she was 16. Uh, she was a prostitute. No, no, sorry, inter- interrupt, 15. Oh, 15. Was it 15? 15. Okay, yeah. 15. So his mum, mum, a prostitute, <laughs> dad left soon after. Um, you know, he was brought up briefly by his grandparents, returned to living with his mum, and the age of seven was rescued by a Lithuanian Jewish family who thought his life was so terrible that they kind of took him on. And these people made their money selling coal to brothels in, in New Orleans. So no parents, no siblings, incredible poverty. When he was 11, caught firing a gun and sent to the Coloured Waifs Home for Boys, Effectively, I think it was kind of junior Borstal, wasn't it? You know, where he spent 18 months, next 18 months, no mattresses on the beds, uh, meals, mostly bread and molasses, got out, sang on street corners for spare change. Uh, around 13, he started hearing jazz in, in, in being played in brothels in Storyville, started playing in a band, started smoking weed. <laughs> the age of 15. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. He pimped for a prostitute called Nootsie. And they fell out after she, she stabbed him in the shoulder. I know, I know. <laughs> His mum took him out to bars and talked, taught him how to drink. One biographer said he smoked three cigar-sized joints a day, which would have contributed to his later lung problems. He then married a prostitute called Daisy, the first of his four wives, when he was 17. Worked in various bands run by mobsters and gangsters. Um, got a job with King Oliver's Creole band when he was 21. Married the pianist. And then recorded a song called Muggles, which, of course, was slang for marijuana, was caught smoking weed. In fact, a rival band leader called the police and shopped him because he was outside the Cotton Club in L.A. smoking weed in the car park. Got a 30 day jail sentence. I mean, and then, you know, he gets into Louis Armstrong and his stompers and he has the vocal hit with the version of Eight Misbehaving by Fats Waller and... Um, you know, and it's, it leads to high society and hello, Dolly, life, and becomes the kind of showbiz figure that we, we remember. But don't you think that's an amazing story? And how so much of that would have been known at the time? They would have the, known about his poverty. Well, no, he was very, because he wrote about this in his autobiography in the 50s yeah. when he was the, you know, America's sweetheart kind of thing. Uh, and he was quite, he was quite forthright about it. Uh, and he never complained about any of it. Because he 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 was immensely positive. But was he talking person. about the poverty? Was he talking about all the, Every, the all drugs? The, all, yeah. all the, I don't know about the drugs, but certainly the violence, the poverty, and yeah, so forth, yeah. and the fact that his his mother was uh, at that stage was uh, was on the game, and his first wife was as well. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is, you know, like you say, he shot the pistol in the street in New Orleans, and uh, and was up before the beak who instantly sent him to the New Orleans home for coloured waifs, which he thinks was the best day's work we ever done for him. Uh, well, that's because he learned to play the corn, didn't he? Uh, they, mean, they had, a, they had a band. They had yeah. a really good band. And they didn't just, they, they played formal stuff. You know, they learned to read music and so forth as well, as well as, uh, you know, playing kind of dance music or, or whatever. And when he was uh, kind of discharged, they said he could go home. He didn't really want to go home because he was quite, is quite happy. And, uh, you know, all Louis ever in his life, all he ever wanted to do was play, just carry on playing. Yeah. You know? And he was, I was just reading, I was just looking at the, this, uh, this uh, biography, Terry Teachout book about, um, about Louis Armstrong that uh, just my, my eye fell upon the page where he has his um, arrangement with uh, Joe Glaser, who was his manager throughout most of his career. And uh, the proposition Armstrong made to Glaser was straightforward. I think it's really interesting. It tells you so yeah. much about musicians. It says, you get me the jobs, you collect the money, 
you pay me $1,000 every week, free and clear, and then you pay off the band, the travel, the hotel expenses, my income tax, and then you can take everything that's left. He didn't care if Joe Glazer made far more than $1,000 a week. It didn't bother him at all. He just wanted $1,000 a week because he thought, that's that's kind of living. You know, I can I can do what I want to do. And then I want to but not security, have to worry it? about anything yeah. else at all. Um, and I think, you know, it's a we're we're soon next week we're going to be talking to Eamon Ford about his uh, about his book uh, Leaving the Building, which is about kind of rock and roll estates, and you know, and uh, and I suppose this all ties in with our conversation about George Harrison all thing, all things yeah. must you know, the afterlife of uh, of musicians. And so much of the time, they don't want to think about the long range at all. They no. just want to think about the next gig. You know, can I get, you know, can you get pay me enough money to get me through the week? That's all. But I'm also wondering. somebody coming from Louis Armstrong's background would just want that security, wouldn't they? That's the important thing. They just want to know that for the foreseeable future, everything's going to be fine. But it's the idea that he didn't care whether if the manager made far more money than he did. He, he just didn't care. As long as they get $1,000 a week. Yeah. After a while, they changed it to a 50, 50 split. But Glaser went on paying Louis Armstrong's income tax and his expenses till the day he died, pretty much, so that Louis didn't have to think about it. <laughs> and... Uh, and it's very often the way that you know, musicians get into problems because they just don't, don't want to think about that stuff. At all. Yeah. But yeah. those things don't go away. You know, they come back eventually. We were uh, having that really interesting conversation uh, just a few days ago with Top Taylor, weren't we? Oh, God. On the, we did a word in your attic with him. A really interesting guy. And he used to be in very a group called, uh, really, really interesting. He was in a group called uh, Advertising. In 1978, and then he went on to form the compact organization, wrote all the hits for Mary Wilson, and has since been in some really, really high ranking and fascinating jobs, isn't he? Sound to, to film and soundtracks work TV, for John yeah. Landis, yeah. and um, you know, working with McCartney and Michael Stipe and stuff. And he told that incredible story, just so interesting how the music industry has changed. He's talking about when he was at school, and this was, I think, in either 72 or 73. Yeah. And he'd seen, he'd been watching either Color Me Pop or Old Grey, well, probably would have been Old Grey Whistle Test. And the presenter was Richard Williams. And he had a band, didn't he? And he thought, I need to get in touch with that guy. That guy seems to know what he's talking about. And, you know, maybe he might write something about our group. He then wrote, you know, he wrote to the BBC and said, how do I get in touch with Richard Williams? And then basically he got a letter back saying, oh, he doesn't work anymore. He works at Island Records. So he went with his mates from school, with the band, dressed in white suits, didn't they, to Island yeah. Records in yeah. St. Peter's Square, banged on the door and said, could they see Richard Williams? They said, well, have you got an appointment? They said, no. And uh, so they sat around in reception. Eventually, Richard Williams walked down the stairway and they stopped him and said, hi, look, we're a band and you know, we bought you a cassette. Richard Williams amazingly took them upstairs, played the cassette in front of them, which is amazing in itself, because you wouldn't want to do that, would you, Norman? No, 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 you, wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want them to see your reaction if you didn't like it. Played the, played the cassette, said, look, I like this, and um, let me take your details, and someone will get in touch. And when they got home, someone had run from Ireland Records to organise them coming around, sorting out a recording contract. And then, then they went back, didn't they? They, they, they recorded an uh, album. The, the de detail, I, I don't think, I don't know if they, well, they recorded something. Uh, the yeah. detail I loved was that when Todd got home, his mother was rather cross, because he obviously hadn't been to school or whatever. And she said, and never mind all that. 
Who do you know in Ireland? In Ireland. <laughs> somebody from Ireland <laughs> rang. <laughs> record company had rung and she thought that was somebody in Ireland. I know. And, uh, but no, it wasn't. It was the beginning. But they, they got it. They ended up. It's honestly, you got to, you got to, you got to listen to this thing. We haven't put it up yet, but it's one of the, one of the most colourful and illuminating chats that we've had in in all our word and erratic conversations over the last over the last year and a it half. It just gave you so much insight into just absolutely, how freewheeling the music industry was. You just if you run into the right person, it's also the, like living in a flat, don't they, with black uhuru? But also it's the fact that he didn't know what was really interesting. His equivalent nowadays would know. Yeah. Would would have spent days on the internet working out who they needed to see and what they could expect. In 1973, it was, it was possible to be really talented in music and have no idea yeah, yeah, yeah. that stuff. Absolutely no concept of how you got on the radio or the telly or got a deal or whatever. You know, there, people weren't thinking about, you know, subsequent to 1973, you get that whole kind of peel show culture, don't you? Where everybody knows how to start a band. And everybody knows how, you know, what you have to do and uh, yeah. you make a record and you produce it yourself and then you send it to John Peel and, and you get a session and then maybe you get something else. They knew every rung on the ladder, every rung on the ladder subsequently. In 1973, they didn't Not at all. His naivety is absolutely incredible. The idea he didn't realise you needed an appointment to see somebody yeah. when he went to record it. And he then when they go and record, the producer keeps saying, can you do that bit again? He said, well, but I've done it. I mean, it was yeah. fun. No, no, I wanted it done again. Why? Why do you want to do it again? You know, it's just unbelievable. Naivety. I mean, I thought it was fantastic. And his whole his life story was extraordinary. It, it, well it was hearing. absolutely. That'll be that'll be up sometime in the next uh, in the next week. Look out for it. And you know, again, it bears repeating. If you follow any of these things, if you listen to the podcast or whatever, please leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever wherever else you do these things because it does make a difference. Uh, and also, if you follow the YouTube channel, which I'm sure many people do, um, do make sure you're subscribed to that channel because that, again, makes a big difference. And the thing that really makes a difference is if you really want to help us in our uh, very important work, um, you can become a Sportron patron. You go to patreon.com slash word in your ear and find out how to do that we'd very much appreciate that we'll be back with any other business this is a junction in the word podcast it separates that bit from this next bit so i've been listening to a podcast about the kidnapping of frank sinatra jr are we all familiar with this, Alex? A bit before your time, I would imagine. Probably no, even a bit. I've, I've, I've heard it, and it's an absolutely brilliant story. Which we, we should recap. Go on. 1963, extraordinarily, between the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the arrival of the Beatles in February 1964, one further huge news event happens in the United States. Frank Sinatra Jr., 19-year-old singer, is kidnapped in, I think, Reno, Nevada. Lake Tahoe, wasn't it? Lake yeah. Tahoe. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, he disappears for two days, I think, uh, and, you know, there are ransom demands that go to Frank Sinatra and so forth. Absolutely huge story. Huge story over here. 
The amazing thing is, the reason why this podcast is really worth hearing is the guy who did it is still with us, which is extraordinary. You know, pretty much all the protagonists in the story are no longer with us. You know, Frank Sinatra Jr. is no longer with us. Obviously, Frank Sinatra is no longer with us. But the guy who did it is. And um, he did it to uh, raise money to get over a short-term liquidity problem. Yeah, he'd become addicted to painkillers after a car crash or something, a back injury, and he just just bankrupted himself. So I need $240,000. What shall I do? I I know. I know I'll kidnap somebody who's, you know, listen to people. He was advised not to kidnap a woman because they don't kidnap a child, you know, because it's too... Yeah, that, that, that's too much scandal, and so. And he got his mate from school, and his mum's former boyfriend was his gang, wasn't it? The amazing thing about this, and I go and go and listen to it; it's really good. But the thing I never realised was the involvement in it, in the story of Jan and Dean Surf Duo. Did you know? Did you know? Catch this bit? No, I don't think I did. No, go okay. on. Okay, so Dean Torrance, who was one member of Jan and Dean, who is Surf City and all those things, Dead Man's Curve and so forth, um, was a very successful pop star at the time, really successful, and he did, the the kidnapper had been to school with him. Okay. And so he borrowed some money off him to finance unknowingly, innocently on Dean Torrance's part, you know. To, to finance this operation. And, uh, and uh, what I was, I, I, again, it's all about rabbit holes, the internet, you know. And there, so the rabbit hole I disappeared down was finding out more about the school that the two of them went to, which was University High in Hollywood, okay? And University High has a somewhat stellar uh, list of, uh, of former pupils, Okay. And I'm just going to run through them as if this is a school register. We're going to take the register, okay? And uh, and so the, you can answer your names on behalf of these <laughs> these legend, legendary figures who went to University High. Okay, are you ready? Funicello, Annette. Yes, sir. <laughs> Cassidy, David. Yep. <laughs> Densmore, John. Certainly am. Fowley, Kim. Yes, Mr. Hapworth. <laughs> Garland, Judy. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Gordon, Kim. Here. Yeah. Krieger, Robbie. So, here. I'm sorry I was a bit late, but I'm here. M- McKee, Maria. Yes, yeah, sir. Monroe, Marilyn. <laughs> Happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> Newman, Randy. Newman, Randy. Yes, sir. Sinatra, Nancy. Of course, absolutely. And, and finally, Taylor, Elizabeth. Wow. All went, all went to University High. Isn't that absolutely That's extraordinary? That's amazing. Because obviously, obviously what happened was that anybody who's in Hollywood, you know, a kind of starlet, they, they had to have somewhere they were supposed to go to school. They obviously never did. You know, they were making movies or making yeah, records yeah. or whatever. But they were on the rolls of University High. That's uh, that's so, that's the case. That was the showbiz school, wasn't it? It, it was amazing. amazing. There was one amazing uh, detail about Frank going back to that um, that case that, that the kidnapper Barry Keenan would only c- communicate with Frank Sinatra Senior via payphone. Yes, he? yes. And it was really rather sweet. And and Frank became so concerned that he'd never have enough coins. 
that he he always carried ten dimes with him at all times for the rest of his life, and he was even buried with ten dimes in his pocket. Isn't that extraordinary? As a legacy yeah. from that that story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a fantastic case. It's an extraordinary Extra- story. So, so bumbling and amateurish, you know. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. So, I was asking if there, if there were people out there had uh, had questions. Uh, you know that we uh, we we often do this on the podcast. See if anybody's got uh, got questions they want to put to us. Somebody was asking. Actually, we may as well answer it here. Blue Mountain wants to know what happened to the Miles Copeland podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we tell the honest truth? The honest truth. I think we should, which is that say, we set up the Miles Cop- Copeland podcast. And he was in Los Angeles at the time. You yeah, know, so and- it, was, it was obviously unusual times of day and so forth. And uh, and we, we, we set it up. Listen, most of these things we set up are set up. And I'm not going to diss anybody here. Most of them we do them ourselves. We directly contact the person and say, do you want to do this? Do you, you know, it's, it's just it's a lot simpler. easier. It's simpler. When you get intermediaries and you get more than one intermediary, sort of things can go wrong. And as soon as you go overseas, you tend to have more than one intermediary anyway. Uh, and so the first hookup that we had with Miles Copeland, ready to record a, a word in your attic, which is done via Zoom, he, he was just on a phone, wasn't he, Mark? I think he was on a phone. He was out in the streets or something. He, said he, he was. Didn't, he didn't understand it was... Yeah, video. Didn't know his video, didn't know his right. didn't understand supposedly what was going on. Although I think his PR had told him, Dave. I think he probably in some <laughs> detail, but it was kind of like, really? What? You know. So yeah. we set up another one, didn't we? Which and was then, when he when he was going to be in France. So it was easier time of day, you know, line up and all that sort of thing. And there we were chateau. again. There we were again, all set. Not there at all this time. Waited about what three quarters of an hour? Uh, probably something like that. They try to get hold of him. Just and, th- and then they were terribly apologetic and said, yeah, "Do you want to set up another one?" And we eventually decided, actually, this is never going to happen. Well, it took four days for him to get back to his PR to, to, just, to respond to the fact. I mean, what it took. It's four days to get back to his own yeah, PR. This yeah. is never going to come off, which is a shame because actually, it's a shame. It's a really interesting book. Really good. It is, uh, but it was just we've our experience tells us that after you've after you've tried and tried a few times, it's really not worth the trouble. Things are either going to happen or they're not going to happen. And I wonder and, if that happened more than once because there wasn't much coverage of it. Actually, I didn't see very many reviews. It's a really good book, but he may yeah, have uh, may yeah. have just uh, not quite uh, got on board with the promotion. Yeah, it was good. yeah. So, okay, uh, other other questions. Um, uh, blah blah blah. Now, thinking about Tom, Darren Leesley says thinking about Tom Daly's knitting. Not very rock and roll leisure activities. Can we think of any? Uh, Ron Wood, he says Ron Wood's painting. Well, that's fairly, I mean, all sorts of uh, musicians paint, don't don't they? Um, Alice Cooper, golf. REM were big on golf, weren't they? I think they played. REM once organized um, an entire press campaign in Southern Ireland, I think, over the fact they could stay at a castle that had a huge golf course. I can remember at the time thinking, that's not very rock and roll. But there must be somebody who crochets or something, mustn't there? Can I nominate <laughs> watercolors? Rod, Rod, Rod Stewart and his train sets. His train sets? Oh, that's oh a yeah, one. very good. That's a good one. Yeah, That's a very good one. All right, Stuart Robin wants to know, what's the band that started with the least amount of members and ended with the most? And vice versa, he says. While you're thinking about that, I have one answer, which I don't know is definitive, but... 
it always strikes me as interesting that the WHO, at the height of their powers, had only four members. Uh, whereas nowadays, if you went to see the WHO, I think you'd see musicians as far as the eye can see. Um, th but that seems to apply to most most bands who can afford it nowadays have tons and tons of musicians on stage, don't well, they? Well, the WHO these days, they have about six or seven members, don't they? They've got two football players. I think Simon Townsend is playing guitar alongside Pete Townsend. Um, they're, they're a small orchestra. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Andrew Dan, would they have been? I don't know. Well, Silly Dan, Dan can, well, he was there. Because they started out as four or five of them, didn't they, really? And then they went. I suppose uh, they were a band, weren't they? Yeah. They, yeah, it's a, a slightly yeah. different case. Andrew Mayall says, given the amount of photos taken of the Beatles, could you assemble a pick for every day from 1962 to 70? Ooh. It would be very expensive to produce, coffee table book, but it'd be good, wouldn't it? I suppose the difficulty with that is being definitive about which day it is. Yeah, I mean, you could be you could be roughly around there, couldn't you? You, know, you could probably work it out to weeks and months, but working out whether the picture was taken on the Tuesday or the Thursday sounds would like, be, sounds like would a job be difficult. Mark it's a Mark Lewison job. My God, I know, they were I pretty think... much photographed. They were so visible. They were yeah. pretty much photographed every day. Whether every day at the Abbey Road, there'd always be somebody waiting outside. Loads of yeah. people. And to be fair, Mark Lewison doesn't need another job, does he? <laughs> if ever there was a man, we can all agree, doesn't need another job. He's got a, he's got a job to do. Uh, Roger Cartwright wants to know what the hell happened to Wishbone Ash. Do you know the answer to this, Mark Allen? Does one of them? Might the world with Wishbone Ash uh, expert. I probably am, having seen them in Bracknell Sports Centre and whatever it was, 1972 or something, 70. Um, I, I got a feeling that Wishbone Ash are sort of still going. As yeah, Martin Turner's Wishbone Ash. I think they still exist. And yeah. uh, God bless them. We could have talked about that uh, some more to Miles Copeland because, of course, he, he, he was managed the rich, he one of the first groups he managed and learned a lot about and, a lot from And uh, what's happening in the next week? We've recorded further Word of Your Attics, as we say. Top Taylor, that'll be coming up soon. Make sure you look out for that. Um, <laughs> we're uh, recording chats with uh, Eamon Ford very soon about his extraordinary upcoming book, Leaving the Building. Have we anything further to add before I go on my holiday? So I'm packing my bucket and spade, looking out at the driving rain out outside. And uh, You're going to the seaside, aren't you, Dave? I'm going to the seaside. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.